Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Anoush Shekelian, and you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. Today, we're bringing you a recording from the Winter Cambridge Literary Festival in December, where I spoke to Chris Bryant, Labour MP for the Ronda and Shadow Minister for Creative Industries and Digital, about how politicians can reform Parliament and win back public confidence. Tickets for the 2024 five-day Cambridge Literary Festival in spring are available from the 1st of February, and you can find the details in the show notes. As chair of the Commons Committee on Standards and Privileges during their busiest periods on record, Chris Bryant had a front row seat to the battle over standards in Parliament that has defined our politics in recent years. We've seen the fastest turnover of Prime Ministers in our history, and more MPs have been suspended from the House or stood down from their seats than ever before. Politicians breaking the rules and expecting to get away with it is one of the biggest issues in our Parliament today, which seems to be unable to escape the mire of sleaze, cronyism and dishonesty. In his recent book, Code of Conduct, Why We Need to Fix Parliament and How to Do It, Chris Bryant makes the case for how to reform Parliament and win back public trust. We began this conversation with a reading from Chris Bryant from his book. I've chosen this little bit to read out simply because we had a reshuffle this week. (laughs) And, And it's talking about reshuffles. The chaos it has produced in the daily business of government has been completely out of the ordinary and immensely harmful to the United Kingdom. Just imagine what it is like as a backbench MP of whichever hue trying to sort out a non-partisan constituency issue. I'll give you one example uh, from my own constituency. There'll be a test at the end of this. <laughs> An old railway tunnel connects the village of Blindcombe at the top of the Ronde Vauer to Blindgwynvi in the Avon Valley. It has been closed for years, but there are plans to reopen it and transform it into the second longest cycle tunnel in Europe. It'd be a great tourist attraction in a beautiful but deprived part of the South Wales Valleys. For some strange reason, despite being in Wales, it belongs to the UK Department of Transport. So for the last three years, I've been trying to get government ministers on board. Forgive the pun. First, I met the Secretary of State, Grant Shapps. He was very enthusiastic and charged his junior minister, Chris Heaton-Harris, with looking into it. Two days later, Heaton-Harris was moved to another department as Europe Minister, and he later became Chief Whip and then the Northern Ireland Secretary. In the meantime, I tried to get a meeting with his replacement, Wendy Morton, but unfortunately, she then became the Chief Whip, she resigned, she unresigned, (laughs) and then she was sacked when Liz Truss fell. (laughs) As for Shapps, he too was sacked, and then became the Home Secretary, and then Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, before having his department reorganised as the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero. I was going to meet with his short-lived replacement, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, but she was swiftly moved to the Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office. Since then, I have spoken to the latest Secretary of State, Mark Harper, but he passed me on to the Minister (laughs) of State, Hugh Merriman, who has passed me on to the Parliamentary Undersecretary, Richard Holden. I'll stop there, because on Monday, Richard Holden uh, was moved and made party chair. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Has any progress been made on that cycle tunnel? Absolutely none. I had a very (laughs) odd text message from Michael Gove the other night. Care to elaborate? I think we'll just leave it there, shall we? I don't know what an ordinary one from... Anyway. Right, Okay. 
Um, so in the book, at the, at the beginning of the book, you describe yourself as a bit of a rules freak. And actually, soon after you were elected to Parliament back in 2001, uh, one of your first things that you called for was parliamentary reform. Why do you think that this issue of cleaning up Parliament has been your priority ever since you became an MP? Uh, two reasons, I think. First of all, um, I know nobody, when you go and door knocking for a political party in a general election, nobody says to you, now, here's the issue I really want to talk to you about. <laughs> um, it's uh, reforming um, the, uh, the way we run committees in the House of Commons. Nobody does that. But actually, the way we do our business is, is about how you use and abuse power. It's all about power. And if you want to change the world, which is basically what every politician enters politics to do, all you have is the, is the system. So that's number one. And the second thing is that um, I was partly brought up in Spain under Franco, General Franco, fascist dictator. I was thrown out of Chile in 1986 by Pinochet's um, uh, police because I took part in a demonstration, uh, another fascist dictatorship. Um, and when you look around Europe, Europe's had dictators of the left and the right in, in my lifetime. And I just think democracy needs defending. It's a very, very fragile flower. And... We've only had, well, we haven't yet had universal suffrage, including women, for 100 years. Um, and lots of people are, I think we're at a very dangerous moment. It's partly because of the kind of Trumpification of politics, which has affected, I think, uh, infected, in fact, British politics in the last few years. But it's also, you know, if politicians make promises which they manifestly have no means of delivering, that just brings the whole system into disrepute. And then people start going, well, you know, it'd be much more efficient to have um, a, an autocracy, an autocratic system. Hmm. So that's why I, I believe that um, uh, the democratic system of el uh, elected representatives is a really important thing to fight for. Well, it's interesting that you talk about the sort of Trumpification of our current time in politics. I mean, your first chapter asks, is this the worst parliament in history? And like I say, you started out as an MP in 2001. Have things got worse? Is this the worst time that you can remember for the sort of security of our democracy? Or, you know, have some things improved? In that well, when I started writing the book, which was last December, I think 19 MPs had been um, <laughs> suspended for a day or more or had left Parliament before a report into their misconduct had appeared. Yeah. Um, when I handed it in in February, 20 had gone. When we published it, 22 had gone, and it's now 25, and it may be about to be 27. Yeah. So, I mean, and actually, when you look at that in terms of our history, I, I did a piece which isn't in the book, which I, I gathered all the times where in the whole history of Parliament, uh, since, you know, the Earl of Leicester and all the rest of it, um, how many times we'd actually removed somebody from Parliament as an MP, there were only 77 cases in hundreds of years. So the fact that we've done it 25 times in this parliament, I think is quite extraordinary. Mm. Now, I, I tell the story in the book of um, when I was first elected back in 2001, um, maybe it was because I was a relatively unusual thing at the time, an out gay man, but some older um, not out gay MPs seemed to feel that it was their privilege to touch me up. And back then, I, I never did anything about it because I, I thought it would probably do me more harm to raise it or do anything about it than um, anything else. Now, I'm glad to say, we have a system for dealing with those kind of cases called the Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme. Um, it's not perfect, but it does mean that members of staff, if they've been sexually harassed or bullied, can go to somebody in confidence and it will be dealt with and they will end up you know, being chucked out of Parliament. So some of the cases that we've got now... 25 years ago, 50 years ago, probably all of that stuff was happening. But now, quite rightly, as in every other line of work, we look askance at that and we deal with it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like sort of every other week I'm going up to cover a by-election now because an MP's had to go over misconduct. And partly that is because, you know, we are actually holding them to account for it. And there's been that societal, cultural change. But, but what's the impact on public trust if they see these misbehaving MPs all the time? Well... What I'm more interested in is what is the impact on the people who've had to make the complaint in the yeah. first place. Because I think uh, I've been saying for quite a while that it's obviously not been a safe place for many young women to work in Parliament, but it's not also a safe place for many young gay men to work either. 
And one MP said to me uh, not long ago, uh, who happens to be gay, he said he only employs gay men because how else would he know how to trust somebody? And I thought, you know that that's illegal. (laughs) You can't just, you can't either not employ somebody because of their sexuality or only employ them because of their sexuality. So I think we've got ourselves in a bit of a mess in in that kind of way. We've got to change all of those attitudes. And of course, you know, we, we vary from... Um, MPs in their 20s to MPs in their 80s. So, of course, you have a a big cross-section of attitudes around some of these issues. But, you know, I mean, I think even more important than all of that work that we've we've still got to do... Oh, incidentally, just one simple thing. I don't think an MP should be allowed to employ somebody with taxpayers' money unless they have received training in employing people unless they've had an open advert and unless they've had an independent person sitting in on the interview. It just seems basic. <laughs> but even, even more worryingly, and this is where the book really... I'm sorry, I'm finding these flowers a bit irritating. Um, did you know, by the way, that floristry is a £2.4 billion industry in the UK? Um, LAUGHTER I'm the shadow minister for creative industries. <laughs> Floristry is a creative industry. You're going to have to retract what you said about the flowers then. I, I love the flowers. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, the reason I started writing the book is um, because I'm still shocked by the Owen Patterson saga. Okay? So um, there have been lots of reports into other MPs' misconduct in the past, and every single time the House has simply endorsed the report from the Standards and Privileges Committee or various different iterations of those committees that we've had. Except for once in the 1940s, um, when it was recommended that somebody be suspended for six months, and Winston Churchill said, actually, uh, from the opposition benches, said, you know, why, why do we just chuck him out? And that's what they did. So we'd only ever made it worse, a stronger sanction rather than the other way around. But in Owen Patterson's case, we've had a rule in in the Commons since 1695 when the Speaker of the House of Commons and the Chairman of the Ways and Means were chucked out of Parliament for helping the Orphans Bill go through Parliament um, in in the Speaker's case for a consideration of 1,000 guineas. And incidentally, the Orphans Bill sounds like it's a good thing. It's not. This was the City of London wanted this bill to take money off the Orphans Charities to give to the City of London. So this bill was helped through in 1695, and we decided that was immoral, and so we've had that rule. No paid lobbying. You're not allowed to take a bribe to to do your work in Parliament. Owen Patterson was employed by two companies for tens of thousands of pounds, um, and he was going around Whitehall and Westminster lobbying ministers uh, and officials to get a, a better deal for those companies. Paid lobbying. We found him guilty on the Standards Committee of an egregious case of paid lobbying, and the report went, in the normal case of things, would go to the House of Commons and it would just be carried without, and we were going to suspend him for 30 days. Incidentally, I think if it happened today, the committee would probably suspend him for longer, but then we recommended 30 days, and that would lead us to a by-election. But Jacob Rees-Mogg... ..turned up to the House of Commons... And, and had organised with Andrew Leadsom, a former leader of the House of Commons, and with the complete support of Boris Johnson and the whole of the government, a motion which basically not only undid our report, but tore up our committee and created a new committee, which was not to be chaired by a Labour MP uh, or an opposition MP, as the rules state, but was going to be chaired by a Conservative, would have a Conservative majority and would have no lay members on it. In other words, a complete stitch-up. And to my mind, that is the polar opposite of a justice system. That at the very last minute, you change the rules in favour of, of a named individual. And the worst of it all was the utter sanctimony of the way he advanced his cause in the House of Commons. He actually quoted Portia um, from The Merchant of Venice. And he did it, the quality of mercy is not strained, a drop of... He even did the hand gesture. It's just like, oh, my... And the thing is, 250 MPs voted with him. Right? And funnily enough, 250 MPs didn't turn up for the vote on whether Boris Johnson had lied to the House of Commons. Um, And that's what worries me, that there there is still a body of opinion in Parliament that these matters of standards in public life don't, don't count. Well, that's, that's what I wanted to ask you, because one of those MPs who didn't turn up to punish Boris Johnson or Owen Paterson was Rishi Sunak. And Rishi Sunak started his prime ministership by saying that he wanted professionalism, accountability and in- integrity at every level. 
Now, I know your book talks a lot about how Boris Johnson has sort of degraded the norms of our democracy and, and the power of parliament, but Rishi Sunak is taking on some of this inheritance, is he not? Yes, well, I make the point in the book. So I think one of the real things that undermines the whole of the political system, and it's not as simple. The, the book is quite nuanced, I would yeah. argue. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, and I say several times in the book, look, uh, first of all, if, you, if you're buying this book because you think Chris Bryant is a wonderful person, please put it down because he's not. Um, and secondly, if you think I'm going to, you know, adopt every um, easy measure that you think going on second jobs and things like that, I'm not, because I think... Um, we actually need a, a grown-up, mature and nuanced debate about how we improve our political system. Um, and one of those is around what you do about MPs lying. Mm -hmm. Because it's, you know, every single MP at some point will um, say something that proves not to be true, either because they believed at the time that it was true or because everybody thought it was true at the time. And, and, and mostly we, we have a chance to correct the record. There's a formal system for a government minister correcting the record, yeah. which we've had since 2007. And actually, since the book came out, that's now available to all backbench members as well. So I think that's good. And where you can, you should correct the record. Sometimes you say five billion when you mean five million and sometimes the other way around. Uh, and you always say France when you meant Germany, whatever. But... Um, <laughs> That's David Cameron, I think. <laughs> Very good on foreign affairs, you know. <laughs> Great um, track record on foreign affairs. <laughs> um, the, um... <laughs> we'll come to that. <laughs> um, but, the, so, but Boris Johnson um, only corrected the record once as a minister, and that was when he'd been asked by Keir Starmer whether, just after the second invasion of Ukraine last year, he'd been asked whether Roman Abramovich had been sanctioned. Um, and Boris Johnson said, yes, he had. Um, and I asked the question again, are you sure he has? Because I don't think he has. And he said, yes, he had. And the next day, he corrected the record. So the only time he's done it is because a, a Russian oligarch got in touch and told, told him to correct the record. But he frequently used to say, you know, what are the benefits, the dividends of Brexit? And he would always say, we did the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe. Well, it's not true. A, we were still in the European Union when we started the vaccine rollout. B, we had agreed, as had all the other countries in the European Union, that there was a system for, for using a vaccine in situations such as the COVID pandemic. Um, and thirdly, and this is the bit everybody forgets, we, we actually had the second worst rollout in Europe. We started faster than anybody else, but we, we, we went slower than everybody else. So we're the second slowest. Now, OK, Boris Johnson's gone. Let's not worry about him. But Rishi Sunak repeats this. Endlessly. The bit about Suella Braverman's not entirely telling the truth as well about immigration statistics, but Rishi Sunak repeats it as well. And this is why I think these issues really, really matter and why I think all MPs, including on my own side and me myself, we have to hold ourselves to a much higher standard and be rigorous with ourselves. Because there was, at one point, there, when Owen Patterson and all that was happening, there was a, and then the Chris Pincher stuff, there was a sort of view that, well, it's just one bad apple. And I think some people think that that phrase means, if there's just one bad apple, that's fine. <laughs> but the whole point of the one bad apple in Chaucer, in the Canterbury Tales, is one bad apple spoils the barrel. Because blight spreads. And that's the problem that we've got. We've, we've grown accustomed to people lying. And you've got a lot of um, potential solutions in your book to some of these problems that you've been laying out. Do you mind telling us some of those? I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, so one of the things we could do about lying is... Um, but it's even more important when a minister misleads the House because they are making decisions. They have an enormous army of people who advise them. So they should be able, A, to get it right the first time. And if, if they haven't got it right, then to correct the record swiftly, because the whole of the rest of us make decisions based on it. Um, and so my solution is that if, for instance, um, the Office of National Statistics writes to a minister to say, I'm sorry, that statistic is wrong. You cannot keep on using it then the minister must correct the record within 28 days. Or my version in the book is that they, they, would, stand, they would be referred to the Committee on um, Standards and Privileges. Actually, I would change that. I, I would just say, or they should be suspended for 10 days. Mm -hmm. If they refuse to correct the record when they've been told to do so by a completely independent body like the Office of National Statistics. And I'll tell you this, the moment they did it once, they wouldn't do it again. Mm -hmm.
Um, I've also, incidentally, got a solution which isn't in the book to another problem. In the 19th century, late sort of 1870s, 1880s, there was a terrible problem in Parliament with the Irish MPs because they were deliberately trying to disrupt the imperial parliament. And so they would get, they would do all sorts of things just to frustrate the way business was done. And so the House developed a new rule of grossly disorderly conduct, which meant that the Speaker could name you um, as being a naughty, grossly disorderly MP, and then you would be out of the House for um, either a day or for five days, or if it was a repeat offence, for 20 days. And they used this quite a bit. On one occasion, they ended up having to do it to lots of them all in one day. Um, well, so one of the things that really winds me up is that the ministerial code says um, that all major announcements should be made to Parliament first. You will have seen Lindsay Hoyle get very cross... Um, with ministers who don't do this, because it's all been leaked in the press over the weekend and all that kind of stuff. And the, and, and the minister will always go, oh, I'm terribly sorry, and then nothing happens. Well, I've got a better solution. We, the speaker should be able to, to decide that if it has been gross and a blatant case, that this is grossly disorderly conduct, and therefore name the minister. Ministers should be suspended for five days, and if they do it twice, 20 days. Michael Gove by now will be on the kind of 180 <laughs> days. <laughs> Um, and so you mentioned David Cameron. I'm very aware, incidentally, that the former clerk of the House is sitting in the front row. <laughs> um, and um, he's sort of pulling faces. <laughs> which he never used to do in the House of Commons. Um, you mentioned David Cameron, and you've described his appointment as the new Foreign Secretary as a disgrace. Why did you describe it that way? I just think... Well, I go back, I believe in democracy, and I think that, especially at a time when we've got war on our continent in Europe, and you've got a major conflagration in the Middle East, the Foreign Secretary should be able to, should have to answer questions in the elected House, in the House of Commons. Now, I would go a bit further, and I, I, I would say that you shouldn't have any departmental heads of departments in the House of Lords, mm -hmm. because whether you're transport or whatever, and I'm aware that Labour did it, just before anybody points this out, um, true, but I think that times have changed, and I think uh, accountability and scrutiny should happen in the elected chamber. And he brings with him his own lobbying baggage. I mean, we were talking about Owen Paterson. David Cameron was uh, deeply criticised for his involvement in the Greensill lobbying scandal. Indeed. Uh, and my guess is that over the next few weeks, um, investigative journalists will be um, digging around and finding an awful lot of stuff. You know, I think David Cameron is very compromised. Um, uh, yeah. And, <laughs> and the, rush, the rush to put Cameron in the Lords in order to bring him into the Cabinet, I mean, does this suggest the government is caring... Uh, yes, wait. <laughs> does this suggest, you know, is this another example of the government sidelining Parliament? Because you detail in your book loads of examples of this, how the government actually passed laws without MPs even being able to see them. Um, during COVID is a particular example, but also rigging the parliamentary timetable to force through their own agenda, Brexit being the, the prime example. So my big thesis in the book, leaving aside the kind of ethical things that we've already talked about, is that um, our parliamentary system is basically winner takes it all, to quote ABBA. Once you become prime minister, as long as you still have a majority in the House of Commons, or at least somebody hasn't sort of voted a motion of no confidence against you in the House of Commons, um, you can do pretty much what you want. You're in charge of every single penny of expenditure. The opposition can't even table an amendment to increase um, expenditure, for instance, on local government or for, to pay for more police officers. You get to decide when Parliament sits, how long it sits for, what it debates um, every single day of the week. Effectively, you get to decide how long you debate individual clauses on a day. Um, so, for instance, earlier on this year, we had the uh, National Security Bill. First bill on national security for a long time. Really important piece of legislation. Uh, and we had amendments. The government had introduced a whole new section to the bill um, in committee. Uh, so that still had to go. And then there were a whole load more amendments at report stage. Um, the amendments were longer than the bill itself. You would think that that would require at least two days' worth of debate. We got two hours and 30 minutes, because the government put in lots of statements earlier on in the day just to fill up the time so that we couldn't really look into it properly. Now, I think that... And, that, and, and that's not all. 
In addition, nearly every bill that goes through Parliament now has King Henry VIII powers, which means that a clause will somewhere say, and the Secretary of State may, by um, uh, regulations, do X, Y, Z. Enormous powers. And these regulations, when they are introduced, are unamendable, and you only get a proper debate in the Chamber of the House of Commons if the government allows it. If you have a debate in the committee... This is getting very technical now, all right? It's still going to be a test later. If there's a debate in the committee, even if every single member of the committee voted no, it would still go through, because the motion is that this committee has considered the matter of this regulation. And by definition, we have, OK? So during COVID, there were all sorts of regulations that went through, using something like 140 different former Acts of Parliament many of them quite obscure going back to the 19th century, um, and some of them came into force even before they'd been published. Mm. That isn't legislation. And then there's another bit, and this is why I got sort of... Which is that the Prime Minister gets to decide how many people to put in the House of Lords. Yeah. Just like that. That's, that's, it's, it's, in any other country in the world, we would think it was despicable. Yeah. But not in Britain, because obviously <laughs> we have a fundamental principle, which is that it's good chaps that run our country. And <laughs> as long as they're a good chap, oh, they're not good chaps. Oh, right. <laughs> well, something that's also extraordinary that you outline in the book is how the prime minister is also the ultimate arbiter of the ministerial code. Yes. So if the ministers seem to breach the ministerial code, it's still the prime minister who decides... What should happen to them? Now, I hope you're keeping up on all these codes. Because there's a lot of codes. There's the Code of Conduct, which is written by the Standards Committee and then agreed by the House, and that affects MPs' behaviour. Yeah. Um, there's the Behaviour Code, which is about sexual harassment and bullying and things like that, um, which also applies not just to MPs, but everybody in the parliamentary community, including the journalists who work in, in, on the estate. And then there's the Ministerial Code, which is written by the Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister, to be fair, has an, an independent adviser on ministers' interests who adjudicates um, on breaches of the ministerial code, but can only launch an investigation if the Prime Minister says, yes, that's fine, mm -hmm. and cannot uh, recommend a sanction at the end. That is entirely up to the Prime Minister. Um, and so you've got this ludicrous situation where Dominic Raab was found guilty of, uh, by the independent, well, by a separate system, because there wasn't an independent advisor, because the independent advisor had resigned, <laughs> because he'd been asked to do something which he thought to be illegal by the Prime Minister. It's a bit of a problem. And, um, and so there was a process, and eventually a report went to the Prime Minister finding that Dominic Raab had um, bullied um, some members of staff in the two departments where he'd, he'd been uh, Secretary of State. If he had done that to his staff in Parliament, the process would have been completely different. It would have gone through the Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme, adjudicated eventually by the Independent Expert Panel, which is chaired by a former High Court judge, and it would almost certainly have led to, I would guess, some kind of suspension from the House of Commons. But because it's just in the Ministerial Code, it's dealt with in a completely different system. So this is why what part of my argument is I think we need to bind all of these yeah. into a single code of conduct um, so that we're, we're all abiding by the same set of rules. 
the rules say that you have to declare any hospitality that you receive that is worth more than £300 within 28 days with the, the form of the hospitality, um, how much it was worth and who paid for it, right? So if you go to Glastonbury, courtesy of UK Music, cost £980, you declare UK Music, £980, Glastonbury, fine. Um, however, in 2015, and nobody can tell me how this rule crept in, in 2015, the, ver- the version of the Code of Conduct that was introduced said, you don't have to do that if you're a minister going to the hospitality in your ministerial capacity. So, so Priti Patel, <laughs> who I actually quite like, um, she's a really, as a person, she's a lovely person. Um, <laughs> a bit like General Klinkerhofen in um, Allo Allo, much nicer than her politics. Um, <laughs> I've said that to her, so it's fine. <laughs> and she laughs. Um, but so Priti Patel went, um, I think it was courtesy of the Jamaica Tourist Board, to a Bond premiere. So she didn't declare it through the House of Commons, and it came out about nine months later or a year later through the ministerial transparency lists. <laughs> and it doesn't say how much it cost, but it would have been £1,500, something like that. And when I asked the minister for the Cabinet Office why she declared it, Um, through that rather than through the House of Commons, he said, well, it's because, and she was Home Secretary at the time, he said, well, it's because James Bond exercises um, executive functions. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I did want to point out, well, James Bond is a fictional character. (laughs) And um, he works for MI6, not MI5, and MI6 is Foreign Office, not Home (laughs) Office. So I really don't see the connection. Such a Chris Bryant response. (laughs) My bigger point really is that there should just be one code that applies to all MPs. We should all have to declare in exactly the same way, whether whether we're a minister or not. And I very much hope that all those kind of things will be implemented by... um, Well, we'll form part of a Labour manifesto and uh, will will, will be implemented by, uh, by... I think we're allowed to think that there might be a Labour government. Yes, you're allowed to think that. And just one more thing on that. You know, you've long been an advocate for an elected House of Lords. The Gordon Brown Commission found that, um, you know, Labour would scrap the House of Lords if it came in. Is that, what, what kind of House of Lords reform would you like to see Labour pushing for ahead of a general election? Well, we election? could do two hours on that alone, couldn't we, really? <laughs> but, uh, and, of course, you've got to... I believe in a two-house a two system yeah. because I think that improves the quality of legislation. I want to reform the House of Lords if only to make sure that the House of Commons then does a better job of scrutinising legislation. Because what always happens is the House of Commons... You know, the government minister never gives way in the House of Commons, even though they know um, it's a sensible proposal that's come from somebody else. They always do it in the House of Lords, um, out of machismo or something, I don't know. Um, And we would just do a much better job. Incidentally, I would also say I want, to use the Dominic Cummings phrase, I want to take back control for the House of Commons. I think the Commons should be in charge of its own daily business. It should decide how many hours you give to the National Security Bill or whatever else. You should have a committee elected by the whole House. Um, Yes, there would still be a, 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 you know, probably government majority on the committee, but they'd have to argue their case. um, And I think you would end up with better, better legislation in the Commons. And then the corollary of that is, yes, you should elect the House of Lords. They should be there on my personal version. They should be there on a much longer spell. So they should only be able to stand once. They should be there for 15 years. Um, And so they have continuity and they're they're more taken outside the, you know, Russell Bustle of the, the, or Hurley Burley of of, of ordinary daily politics. Mm -hmm. Um, And they shouldn't all be elected in one go. So you have a third, a third, a third at each general election. So the primacy of the um, representation is in the Commons still, um, and they have a revising role, not a determining role. And you're on the front bench now, um, and in your book you've defended the whip system, actually, but you have said that there's been a bit of an overreach in what votes are whipped. And going by the sort of Gaza ceasefire vote that we saw this week, which was the biggest um, rebellion that Keir Starmer suffered and led to a number of front benches resigning, do you think it would have been better to have that as a free vote where his MPs could have voted with their conscience? Well, I think quite a lot of people did think it was a free vote and, <laughs> uh, and did so. And look, and in, in the end, every single vote in Parliament is a conscience vote. Mm-hmm. Um, it's rare that your conscience takes you in a different place from where your party is going. But look, uh, politics is this, it's basically about three things. It's about what you believe in, you know, the, 
whether you believe that you know the individual is the is the is the economic unit that you have to protect at all costs, or whether you believe that we achieve far more by our common endeavour than we do by going it alone. So all the things that you passionately believe in, um, it's about how you put that in those those beliefs into uh, place. So your manifesto or your policies or um, the speeches you deliver or the or you know the broadcast interviews you do, all of that kind of stuff. And then thirdly, it's about the alliances that you form. And the first alliance normally for everybody is um, what political party you join. Because I'm very fond of Caroline Lucas, but Caroline Lucas can't win a vote in the House of Commons because there's only one of her. Um, so she has to, she's had to form alliances often with others to be able to win things. Um, and, and I think the Labour Party tends to get very, very focused on the first bit, which is what you believe in, to the exclusion of the alliance bit. And I would argue, actually, at the moment, that the Conservatives are going through this too, because they're having a big old battle within the Conservative Party about what they believe in. But you have to keep on reminding yourself that politics is a team sport. I mean, we've all got egos, but if your ego is, you know, so large that nobody else is allowed in the room, then you're never going to win a vote. Thank you. And just lastly from me, before we go to the audience... um... You don't say that all second jobs for MPs should be banned, as some people do. Think. No, I think writing books is fine. Yeah, that's what, well... Oh, you've ruined my question. No, that's sorry. what I was going to ask you. <laughs> um, but it doesn't, it doesn't come without risks. So your colleague, Rachel Reeves, was found in her latest book um, to have lifted some passages from Wikipedia and other sources. Is it better for politicians, who, perhaps in such busy positions like that, to wait till they have more time to write a book? Well, funnily enough... Um, Oh, I shouldn't say this. <laughs> uh, so after that story happened, I, I've got another book out in February, and I thought, well, I'd better check just to see whether I've plagiarised any of it. And there are... I mean, anybody who works in a university, I mean, this is standard, isn't it? University students have to do that before they hand work in. So I did it. I put my whole book through um, one of these uh, plagiarism checks things, and it came back and said 13% likelihood of plagiarism. I thought, blimey, I'd better ring the publishers, because it's, you know... Um, but then I checked, and um, most of it was things where I'd already cited where it had come from, you know, so it says the Times, 1835, whatever. And then the rest, it was me quoting myself. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm not sure what that says about I'm not, me. I'm not sure if that's worse. I'm really honest. <laughs> I'm a boring old something uh, who keeps on repeating himself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Rinse and repeat. Uh, no, but seriously about second jobs. Look, I, I think the key thing is whether there's a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, if, you, if all I did was write books and didn't do my constituency work and didn't speak in the House of Commons and so on, then I think, I, I hope that my voters would chuck me out. But I'm very conscious that that sort of Damocles doesn't wave uh, fairly because if you're in a very safe seat, my seat's been Labour since 1885 then you, 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 you have more leeway than you do if you're in a very marginal seat, so, which is another argument that some people have for proportional representation, though the danger then is that you don't have a constituency at all and it's only the party leader who decides whether you get elected and mm. where, how high you are on the list and so on. Um, but uh, I've just gone down a rabbit hole and I've forgotten where I am now. <laughs> um, oh, second jobs. So, but you do have to start asking questions when somebody's on their seventh second job, Yeah, <laughs> I think. I mean, I presume that Brandon Lewis is not intending to stand or not intending to win at the next election anyway. But, and I think some of the jobs where you're advising corporations, it's difficult to see that that's not using your parliamentary position, if I'm honest, in an inappropriate way. Mm-hmm. So that's where I go, ooh, I'm... Uh, and instantly, I'm not a big fan of... Um, I can see hosting an occasional radio or television programme, like Danny Kruger did an interesting thing with his mother about um, assisted dying. Oh, yes. I, I perfectly understand that. That's perfectly... I get that. I'm not so keen on people presenting uh, news programmes every week. Yeah, we've got a lot of Conservative politicians in particular hosting GB News and talk TV shows, interviewing their colleagues, which is quite an odd... And that, I just think, is weird. So that's, it's one of the chapters where, again, I, I tried to make this kind of nuanced um, argument, really, which is that I'm, not, I'm fine with somebody who is a farmer representing an agricultural constituency still earning a living out of their farm. That doesn't bother me at all. That seems perfectly legitimate. 
So I don't, I don't sort of crack the um, no second jobs on any account uh, kind of whip because I, th I think that would be a mistake. Can I just do the one thing that I of told course. you about earlier? Which, yeah. So you will not know because every novelist who writes about politics gets this wrong. Um, including Jonathan Coe, um, <laughs> in case anybody was in earlier. But quite often they will say in a book, and then the MP resigned. You can't resign as an MP because of a motion in the House from 1624 that says that no Member of Parliament can resign. Um, however, another motion from 1680 says that if you are given an office of profit under the Crown, um, then you are automatically disqualified as a member. And for a long time, we had um, ministerial by-elections when somebody was made a minister, unless it was just after a general election, because then it was thought that you'd earned the right to go into government. That's what the election had been about. Anyway, we got rid of those in 1926, and we now have this kind of little, uh, like, appendix in the British uh, political system, which is that in order to resign you have to ask the Chancellor of the Exchequer to make you the Crown Steward and Bailiff of the Manor of Norstead or the Chiltern Hundreds. Now, Nadine Dorries, <laughs> who is a notorious publisher of fiction, um, <laughs> including the sentence, um, I am resigning with immediate effect. <laughs> um, she, uh, it, she took 74 days, I think it was, or, some, or 57 days, I can't remember, to actually do the business of writing to the Chancellor to be made the... Yeah. Um, I can't remember what she had. But this is a nonsense. Yeah. It's a paid, I mean, I know so you might be going, oh, but I think it's quite quaint that we do it. No, I don't. I think it's just <laughs> a nonsense. And the best example of it was um, when Jerry Adams, remember um, Sinn Féin uh, leader, um, he decided to resign. So he, he, and he actually did know to write to the Chancellor. So he wrote to the Chancellor saying, um, I'm resigning. Cheers. Ta-ra. And um, George Osborne made him the Crown Steward and Bailiff of the Manor of Northstead. And he said, but I don't believe in the Crown. How can you... I don't want to be the Crown Steward of anything. <laughs> and George said, well, we're just going to presume that you did want to, so you are. So there. <laughs> right, brilliant. OK, let's um, have some questions from the audience. Um, Oh, that hand went up at the back there um, fastest, I think, so we'll go to you first. You mentioned um, investigative journalists going after David Cameron, rightly so. Um, <laughs> so what role do you think that journalists can have in building public trust in parliamentary standards whilst also holding them to account? Thank you. And for anyone who didn't hear, that was what role can journalists play in holding um, parliamentary standards to account? And you've done so much work on, on the role of the media, Chris, in your career. Yes. I think a free press is really important. Uh, it's, you know, it's often referred to as the fourth estate. Sometimes I wish it was a bit freer of its um, proprietors and able to make more independent decisions about the direction that it's taking. I recall that my phone was hacked back in 2003, which is why we have a new bathroom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which, which I call the Rupert Room. Um, <laughs> and um, I'm very naughty, aren't I? Sorry. Um, uh, no, it's a serious point, which is uh, I, having competition between editorial outlets is important as well, I think, both in broadcast and print media. Um, but the very important thing is that no newspaper should ever use the kind of coverage that they might or, or the work that they the investigative work that they've done to try and secure um a political political outcome and that's my worry that sometimes you know a newspaper editor is a very important figure in the land um i'm a bit skeptical about having any um newspaper proprietors in the house of lords as well another question please um, this man here in the, or in the red jumper, sorry. Obviously much has been made of this idea that we have a winner-takes-all system that allows um, the governing party to get away with too much. Um, how far do you think proportional representation might redress that? Thank you very much. So the question was about proportional representation, changing the voting system. Well, it might, in the sense that you would, end up, you would mostly end up with coalition governments. And, and that might limit power. But I didn't feel in the coalition government of um, Nick Clegg and David Cameron that they had really abandoned any sense of them being entirely in control of everything. 
There are good arguments for proportional representation. Broadly speaking, I support PR. Um, it's just a question of which kind of PR, because I, I love being the MP for the Ronda. I like the fact that I'm rooted in a community and the people come and, you know, they come up to me in Morrison's and tell me what they think of how I voted or whatever. I think that that's an important part of the way we do our work, which is, and I, I know the Spanish politics quite well, that, that just doesn't happen in Spanish politics. Um, because they have an entirely PR list system with a closed list system. So um, I'd be more in favour of a kind of top-up system, uh, such as the one that we have in Wales at the moment. Oh, incidentally, the, the other thing I think you shouldn't be able to do, you shouldn't be able... No government should be able to change the standing orders of the House of Commons without a supermajority, because, you know, at the moment we suspend standing orders, you know, well, quite a lot, most weeks, in, normally in a, in a relatively minor way, but sometimes more significant ways, um, and that's inappropriate. And likewise, I don't think you should be able to change the law on how you run elections. You may not know, but I, these figures are probably wrong, but at the moment the limit on how much money you can spend in a general election is £18 million, I think. The government presently wants to, add, wants to hike it up to £36 million. And that is because they will have £36 million to spend mm. and nobody else will. Now, I think that that's inappropriate. Chris, you said uh, David Cameron can't come to the House of Commons to be scrutinised. Is this another law from 1635 or what do we need to do to change that? Because it does seem to me crazy and why can't Parliament say he should come? Well, funnily enough, when... Um, Peter Mandelson was appointed, I produced a little paper for Gordon Brown saying I thought it would be a good idea if we could just say for a named individual such as that that the House of Commons would allow a member of the House of Lords to appear in the House of Commons and answer questions. I think the House of Lords might have a take a view on it as well and the House of Commons might, but I'm sure there's a way around that. The, the, the British Constitution is so infinitely flexible that we must be able to, um, you would think, flex it in that way. I gather that he's been David Cameron has been telling friends that um, he's a bit nervous that, that we will insist that he stands at the bar of the House. I don't mean the, like the pub bar. <laughs> um, the, the bar where the, the silver thing that comes out, which is where we normally have recalcitrant and naughty people. It's the kind of naughty step in Parliament, uh, which hasn't been used, I think, since John Junor in... I'm looking at the former clerk. 1954? <laughs> well, we're getting a yes. There we are. Wow. So, um, anyway, so yes, I think we should... We could, I'm sure there's a way of doing it if we wanted to. There's some suggestion that he might answer questions in Westminster Hall, um, which is actually not... It doesn't mean Westminster Hall. It means the committee room, the grand committee room next to Westminster Hall. Because um, otherwise it might be a bit like the trial of Warren Hastings. <laughs> which went on for six years, I think. You started by saying that women are allowed in Parliament, in a jokey way. Um, I would argue that they're not terribly welcomed... What do you think some of the reforms you've been recommending would do to redress that balance? Well, I'd like to see more women in Parliament because I think that would help redress the balance because they, for instance, the campaign to get the independent complaints and grievance scheme was largely led by women MPs of both sides. So, though, if you read Theresa May's book, you would think it was entirely introduced by her. <laughs> um, but actually, Andrew Leadson was very significant and Jess Phillips and um, Stella Creasy and... Um, Valerie Vaz and various others. It was really important. Um, you know, th there are some things that nobody notices because you just kind of presume that it's okay. But we have a stranger's bar in Parliament and a stranger's gallery. Every other country has a public bar and a public gallery. But we think that we have to reassert assert that we are more important than anybody else who might come in. We have this strange thing. When the Speaker's procession comes in, um, for, to start the day, the police officer shouts out, hats off strangers. Well, that doesn't include women, by the way. Um, women are allowed to keep their hats on. Um, so far as I can, and since nobody's wearing a hat, as far as I can see, and members are allowed to keep their hats on because you're allowed to wear a hat in the Chamber of the House of Commons. As long as, when you stand up to speak, you are uncovered, so you're not allowed. But when Nancy Astor was first elected, they spent a day debating what to do about the fact that she would have a hat with a hat pin, and was she, when, when she stood up to speak, should she speak with a hat on? Anyway, um, so a lot of these things need to change. Um, but in the end, the thing that's got to change is the attitude of entitlement um, amongst me and my 649 very close friends. Mm. 
I have two questions that are related about increasing the power of the backbench MPs. I think that the whipping system, which means that MPs can't vote their conscience, and the lack of adequate research staff for, for backbench MPs, so that everything is in the hands of the government <coughs> or of the shadow cabinet, which very much weakens the strength of individual MPs. And with a much weaker system of whipping and more research staff, backbench MPs could have a much more significant role which would increase the democracy. Thank you. Chris, do you agree with that analysis that backbench MPs are weakened? And if so, how would you empower them? Uh, well, I think I had, when I was a backbench MP and chair of the committee, I think I had a lot more research facility because the committee was, um, clerks were there to support me. And I was also on the Foreign Affairs Committee and the committee clerks there. There were seven, I think, on the Foreign Affairs Committee. And we had a lot of research support. Um, the, one of the ironies is that the shadow cabinet has next to nothing. Mm. They, they have one member of staff each, in addition, because they're in the shadow cabinet. And if you're a junior shadow minister like myself, you get nothing. Absolutely nothing. So I write quite a bit in the book about the whipping system because mm. I understand the argument that people make, um, such as you did, uh, Madam, but I actually want a government that is competent and works as a team. And I would say that the last few years of chaos has shown that actually you want a leader to be able to lead and command, command is perhaps the wrong word, but lead their team so that the team functions as a team. And that presumes that you have some kind of whipping arrangement. But... I've only, I voted against the whip three times, all on one day, um, which was over Brexit, because I, my constituency voted leave, about 60%, maybe 60-40, something like that. There aren't specific numbers for constituencies, but roughly that. Um, I was a Remainer, I remain a Remainer, and I will remain a Remainer until my dying day. So what was I meant to do when it came to... The, so the whip was to vote for triggering Article 50. I thought that was patent nonsense, because... Um, it was a time-limited process to negotiate our leaving the European Union, and we had no idea what we wanted out of it. Most people had said we were going to stay in the customs union, including Michael Gove and everybody else had said we were going to stay in the customs union and um, the single market and stuff, and now apparently Theresa May was saying we weren't going to do it. So I'm, I am denied and I'm denied and I'm denied, but then I decided, you know what, I can only vote for what I in conscience believe is the right thing to do. Um, and so I voted against triggering Article 50, and I said in my speech, and look, and I'm sorry to my constituents, I know my constituency wants me to vote in the opposite direction, and it may be that I will lose my seat because of this, but in the end, sometimes you do, you do just have to do what is, you think is the right thing to do. I thought that the general election would be three years later. It proved that it was six weeks later, <laughs> um, and I was very frightened. that I thought I would lose my seat in 2017, um, and in fact, every other Labour MP who was in a leave seat who voted against triggering Article 50 is gone. I'm the only one left. So it does, you know, I mean, your vote does make a difference in more ways than one. Mm. But I think we're all, honestly, we're all pretty... Con mostly the whip is there just to say, you know, the votes are at 4.43 <laughs> or... Um, uh, you've got to go away next week because you've got an operation or whatever or you're, you've got a family issue or whatever. Most of it is nothing to do with cracking the whip and forcing people to vote against their conscience. That's really, really, really rare. And mostly, it's just trying to make sure that you're, operating, you're working as a team. And I go back to that. You see, there was, a, there was another man in British history who was a priest. In the, I used to be a priest in the Church of England. Um, uh, who was a priest in the Church of England and an MP, although he did it in a different order. John Donne, and this is basically my fundamental premise, which is that no man is an island... Sorry about the casual sexism of the early 17th century. No, no man is an island um, entire of itself. Seek not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Any man's death diminishes me because I am a part of humanity. So that's, that's what my socialism is, basically. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Statesman podcast recorded at the Winter Cambridge Literary Festival. Tickets for the Spring Festival will be available online from the 1st of February. Speakers will include Caroline Lucas, Satnam Sangera, Alif Shafak, Andrew Marr and many more. To sign up, please follow the link in the show notes.